this guy lives in Okayama. He's standing right over here. His name is Omori Reiji. And uh, about 25 minutes ago, he wheeled in his suitcase full of Shino pottery. He's got this feel to his work that is supernatural. Like uh, he's not trying to put on any airs. Mm. The, the feet are just incredible. Like they've been around a hundred years mm. or is he more. The, art, the, the artist or a... Yeah, he's the artist. Oh, um, Robert, how do you want to do that? I mean, you have, you have somebody in your gallery now. I mean, I feel oh, no, that, that, a bit... He knew that at five o'clock, um, I would be talking to y'all. <laughs> so <laughs> shall we shall we shall we start and we will wait for you? Is that what you're telling me? No, no, or... no. I think Rob's under the impression that we've already started, to be honest with you. <laughs> well we have already started. I, I, I hit the record button, so you know, hey, it's on. <laughs> this is just perfect. I mean, how many times do you get to see, you know, a, a potter coming with work yeah. to show me? Yeah you know, um, to be selected, so. The people of Sake actually brought me into Sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just Sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. Of... <laughs> yeah, so Sebastian, go ahead. Um, you, I can gallery or you, we can just stand here and, and, and well i had prepared something but i in the, in the way I, I knew that by inviting robert chillin it could not start like like a usual uh, sake on air podcast <laughs> <laughs> um so really delighted to have you on the show robert i mean robert has been in japan for 26 years or so 36. Uh, 36, sorry. You've been, yes, 84, that's 36 84. years already. And um, shortly after arriving in Japan, you fell in love with a pair of uh, Guinomi, isn't that right? I did. And that is the beginning of a long uh, journey, adventure, which today makes you a, if not the, specialist of Japanese ceramics. And uh, what I mean by that is not only the American guy who can talk about Japanese ceramics, but somebody who is most definitely recognized in Japan amongst the Japanese, Japanese ceramics specialists, uh, as somebody who understands um, not only the objects, but of course the values, the traditions, the history uh, behind all the, piece, all the pieces and, and the artists. That immense knowledge that you have accumulated about ceramics is partly available to all of us. And your website, uh, japaneseceramics.com, uh, has a, or gives us access to an incredible archive of um, text, uh, articles that you wrote, and, and content about Japanese ceramics. And last but not least, uh, you um, happen to live in uh, Kyoto, and I'm extremely jealous about that because you <laughs> live right in front of the Philosopher's Pass, right next there, to Silver Pavilion, and and well, I think most of us would like to uh, uh, to be able to say that it's like a dream. It certainly is like a dream. 
And uh, just uh, this year, we moved into this wonderful house gallery that everybody is welcome to visit when they're visiting Kyoto. Um, just one thing, Sebastian, my website is uh, japanesepottery.com. That's absolutely right, and I'm sorry about that. No worries. And it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I follow all that you do on Sakai on Air, and so I, I thank you for inviting me uh, on your show to talk about that. Thank you very much. And uh, let me welcome um, our two, or actually three hosts, uh, co-hosts for the day. We have one of your good friends, uh, the American sake expert in Japan, John. <laughs> Hello, Rob, John. We've said hi before, but by way of quick introduction, Rob and I for, I don't know, what was it, 10 years or so, Rob? Once a month or so, we would do these sake and pottery seminars in Tokyo that were just so wow. much fun. <laughs> it was it was a blast. I mean, one of the, the highlight decades of, of my life, um, you know, um, John and, and my life kind of have a parallel unfolding about what we uh, have gotten ourselves into, <laughs> you know, via um, just an encounter. And it's 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 funny because the first sake that we both went, wow, was Oyama uh, from. Oh, Yama. wild. Nice memory. Cool. Yeah. Oyama. Yeah, it was for me. I guess I forgot that it had been for you as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh my God, that was the epiphanal moment. Um, and I was reading John's columns uh, when he first started writing. Oh yeah, now there's somebody out there besides Kondo Hiroshi with a forward by uh, George Plimpton <laughs> about sake. You know, there's there's a, 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 a guy writing about it. And I remember I either sent you a postcard or I faxed you. I go, you know, there's there's vessels around there. Yeah, right, right. And then you you wrote about that a couple times, and I go. Hey, look what this dude's doing. I could probably do the same with pottery because I was teaching English. You were an electrical engineer. And then uh, you introduced me to my first editor, who was uh, Alexander McKay Smith IV. And he'd been looking. He, I remember he told me, I've been looking for a, for a Japanese ceramics expert for years. Yeah. <laughs> up hands in the phone. He goes, oh, my gosh, we've been waiting for somebody. It's such a vital part of Japanese culture. So, you know, that led into the column that I wrote for a while called Ceramic Scene. And uh, we did these seminars at Mushu first. Remember Mushu? Yeah, I don't think anybody does but you and I, but yeah, it's been yeah. gone for a long time. <laughs> what, where, where is Mushu? Oh, it was. But it was right at Awajicho intersection. So just, just a little bit uh, west of Marunouchi. All right. And let me say hello to Rebecca as well, who's with us. Hello, Robert. I was just telling the, the team that um, every time I go to Kyoto, I try to pop into your gallery, but you seem to always be out at tennis. So <laughs> <laughs> I need I need to give you a heads up definitely when I'm coming because I, I tend to interrupt your, your tennis time. Please interrupt my tennis time. <laughs> Down the street, there's this amazing uh, quirky sake expert bar runner. His name is uh, Koyama-san. He has a place called uh, Yoshida Sakamichi. And it's fabulous, like a hidden gem. And I would love to take you there. So please. I'm on the next Shinkansen. Don't worry about it. <laughs> please, please. And, and last, we have Justin as well, who has opened the session for us. Yes. Yeah. Justin Robert. and I, uh, we've, we've not personally met before. But. I know, we have been connected for some time, but we have never actually connected directly. I just sort of assumed I would be in Kyoto and we would, there would be, you know, some fate of the world that would just bring us together. And for some reason or another, it just hasn't happened. So 
I look forward to when we can all cross borders easily. Exactly, exactly. You know, thank you so much for, for, sitting, uh, for sitting down with us tonight. Oh my gosh, my, my great pleasure. I mean, you know, I got guinomis everywhere here, <laughs> and cups and flasks and beautiful katakuchis. And, you know, it just, it just makes drinking so much more in, enjoyable, for, at least for me. I remember when John and I would do these seminars, you know, 90% of the people, they just want to drink. It doesn't matter if it's a paper cup or a plastic cup or a coffee cup, just fill my glass, you know? And then another 10% were like, you could see their eyes kind of perk up and they go, well, this is interesting how sake has these vessels which were specifically made for the enjoyment. Um, so, you know, I, I, I just tried to share that, you know, with uh, people around the world. And again, uh, this is the sake cup and tokuri section of my gallery. Yeah, so go ahead, Sebastian, I'll just well, follow I mean, can, can you share a little bit of your knowledge with us and with our listeners? We're very much interested to understand a little bit about the, the history of the various shapes that are used in, uh, for, for sake drinking or for, for the enjoyment of sake, as you, as you say, and uh, understand the differences between these shapes and how they're called. Yeah, well, you know, Japanese pottery is uh, the history goes back to Jomon, you know, 15, 16,000 years ago. Uh, and they were making vessels for drinking back then. They weren't very durable. That's why not many survive because there was no kilns back then. Everything was open fired and pit fired. And kilns, which are covered ovens basically were introduced in the fifth century via Korea. And then you could vitrify and make hard stoneware um, vessels which held liquid much better. And of course, when the tea ceremony came into prevalent and, and popularity, there were the kaiseki meal, so there were different vessels being made. Um, you know, there's where to begin. The, you know, the history of Japanese ceramics is just in, incredibly deep and long. And I know a lot, but there's a lot I don't know. And so I just started learning on myself, basically. Uh, I, I became addicted to this pottery aspect of Japanese culture. And it taught me everything I know about Japan, because when you look at the, the history of Japanese pottery, you can flow throughout time. And it's related from Jomon, in Yayoi, in Heian, in Kamakura period, Muromachi, there were always pottery being made. So when you want to study the history, the politics, Japanese culture, you can find it uh, related to ceramics somewhere. And that became fascinating for me. So for 20 years, I didn't watch TV. I had books and, you know, at the time I was living in a small area of Shizuoka, so there wasn't much to do at night before the internet. So I would just pour over books. And so I, I just went on a mission to teach myself. And again, when I was reading John's column, I said to myself, well, I have all this knowledge in my head and I want to tell people, because I think somebody else will be interested in it, just like John thought that somebody else would be interested in sake. So you go out and you, and you write. And I started writing about this and it turned into something uh, very viable and, and helping living artists. Like, you know, Shino dates back 400 years and I could sell old Shino pottery, but it doesn't help any of the living artists. So I want to support people who are working today uh, in these ancient traditions. Um, and that's one of the reasons I started the website in the, in the, in the 90s. Uh, just to share this knowledge, you know, it's like telling your friend about a good restaurant down the street. I think you might be interested. You should go check it out. And in in a nutshell, that's that's how I came about doing this. And and like John, 
you know, who I have the greatest respect for because he's, his writing and his, and his lecturing are very constant and consistent. I'm kind of a Mika Bozu type of guy with that. Like I'll do the blog for three days and then I'm done with it. Uh, but, you know, I have my own way of sharing what I'm doing. Uh, and, and again, I want to support living artists. So you have to look at old pieces to understand where we are today. You know, and, and you guys don't, re you can't really drink 400 year old sake, but I'm holding a 400 year old sake flat. Wild. So this is a Kobizen ko, uh, Funadokuri. So if you were on a boat, you needed something stout and heavy that wouldn't sway on the waves. So this was called a um, Funadokuri or a Kabura Dokuri because it's, it's the shape of a, like a Kabura to turnip. F fune you know, means ship, and is that right? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a, it was a sake flask for you know uh, a boat, because you know sailors get thirsty, and uh, there's not always a bar on board. But this was their traveling bar, you know. But you know, my point is that you have to look at ceramic history, and you know, I can hold it. I don't know what the oldest sake you drink before drank before, but it's certainly not 400 years old. No. <laughs> <laughs> What would that taste like? <laughs> you can take a zero out. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I had to look at old pieces. And at that point, before the internet, it was basically books. So I would go to Jimbocho all the time. I have a great library in the back, going to museums themselves and traveling around Japan, visiting these ceramic towns and going to the local museums and talking with potters. He's just, that's the sound of his suitcase closing, packing up. It's a traveling, uh, it's, it's amazing work that he does. Now, I'm, I just got this sake cup tonight. Um, there's four others I bought, but he's taking them home. I said, I need one to drink from tonight. Um, it's, a, it's called a tsutsugata. It's a cylindrical tall cup, but look at the lip. You know, uh, it's called a Yamaguchi, uh, Yamamichi lip. Mm -hmm. Looks like a path. Beautiful form to hold. You know, this is probably uh, good for um, a nice aromic, uh, flowery, floral sake because your nose will go right in there and you'll get all the wonderful aromas from it. Um, it would be also good for uh, a warm uh, kan or atskan because the heat will not evaporate. Whereas, you know, an open face cup like this, where the lip is very thin, uh, it's probably good for, you know, a ginjo more for a chilled sake uh you know the lip and i remember john do you remember you 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 doubted me once i go john the sake cup is going to change the flavor profile of the sake and you go get out of here i go here take this cup and take this cup and pour the same sake into it and it was one of those like oh i think he's right like george and um, so the thickness of the lip, the angle of the lip, how you tilt your head back. So this particular cup with its open face, you can just go like this. You don't have to tilt your head back. So the sake will come right to the front. But this long cylindrical one, I've got to go back like this. The sake will go right into the back of your mouth where, where you know, your taste buds sense different flavor profiles. So, you know, and, and here's a, a black sake cup. So... How good would Nigori look in here? Beautiful. Right? 
great contrast between the, yeah, the contrast to be great you know and and this is also a nice wintry cup because in the winter we want something that will will bring us down to earth in a way uh and make us feel warm you know in in the winter we probably don't want a icy blue colored cup because we're already cold this is very nice in the summer where you want to feel coolness so the color imparts emotion and color imparts um, association with the seasons. So just like with Japanese cuisine, uh, seasonality is important in choosing a sake cup. You want something that flows with the seasons. Um, this is a nice spring type of color, you know, kind of a pink brownish uh, crackle glaze. Again, Shino, the same style that Mr. Omori makes, the gentleman here but by a different artist. So you want to choose um, sake cups, guinomi as they're called, or sakazuki, or hai, they're different names. Could you tell us a little bit about these different names? I mean, how, what's your rough classification of them? The most generic term is otoko. You know, it's, it's like the, the ones you find from Meiji or Taisho, they're really thimble-sized small pieces. They're not like we know today. Then there's sakazuki and hai, and the most common term today is guinomi. And these became larger uh, 1940s onward, but mostly by uh, the, the potter, chef, painter, calligrapher, woodcarver, Rosanjin, who was a big fan of Shichihon Yari. He used to trade his work for sake. There's a big sign uh, board above there. So- Shichihon Yari is in Shiga can I, Prefecture. In Shiga, can I interject right there? <laughs> I went down to visit Shichihon Yari one time, and, and as Rob pointed out, there's a big, what do you call it? It's carved, it's calligraphy, but it's carved, right? And I just, it was like, he says, this is, uh, this is Rosanji did this. I'm like, holy mackerel. I just had to take a picture of it. So I came back to Rob, I'm like, Rob, check this out. Didn't say where I was, didn't say anything. Boom, he's like, Rosanji could only be one. From the characters carved into the wood, Yellen was able to look at it and know exactly who the artist was. It was so cool. Well, as Lao Tzu was a great... Chinese poet. And like in the sixth century BC, he wrote, the better developed a potter is as a human being, the better his pot, for there's no real beauty without character. And he also said, every piece that comes from the potter's hand is like their signature or their heartbeat. So once in my case, when I've looked at so much over 30 years, I can look at a piece and quite often tell who the artist is without anything else. And sometimes the age of the artist too, by how a foot is carved. Because the more mature you get, uh, the more natural uh, the pieces become. So um, yeah, so guinomi now are the most common term. And that started with Rosanjin, you know, after, you know, right around the war and after the war, uh, and particularly later um, when Potters started making them bigger in the 50s and the 60s um, when people were able to, you know, buy more sake and drink more sake. Um, so ochoko, sakazuki, hai are kind of old-fashioned terms. They're still used, um, but guinomi is the more common term. And then for pouring sake, you have something, a, pour, a, a spouted vessel called a katakuchi, mm -hmm. which is really nice to use when you're drinking with friends because if you get a tokuri, which is a sake flask, it's a smaller opening. And you know, the more the night progresses, uh, the harder it is to pour into that little hole. 
So when you're drinking with friends, having a katakuchi, you can just pour a bunch right in without having to worry about slopping it over the side of the tokuri. It's also annoying to try and find out when, when your tokuri is run out. You know, there's that, oh, let's have a kampai, and there's nothing left in the tokuri because you can't see what, what level the, the sake is at. Yeah, after a while, you just you get a gauge of that through experience by the weight of the tokuri and, and the little jiggle. But still, I hear what you're saying. Well, that's the pro tip. That's definitely the pro tip. And uh, there are two th theories about why they're called tokuri. One is from a Korean term, uh, which sounded like that. But a good tokuri should make a rhythmical tok, 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 tok sound. Like, and so they think that that's why it came tokuri. Um, and when you buy one, the best opening is about the size of your pinky. So you get that rhythmical sound. If it's too fat, it just gushes out, and that's quite boring. There's no there's no uh, or, uh, oral aesthetics in that. So the sound of sake pouring out of your flask is is very important. Tuk, 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 tuk. Of course, a katakuchi won't do that, but it's a different uh, aesthetics altogether. Katakuchi is great if you've got uh, an ishobin in particular because. So a 1.8 liter bottle because it's quite hard to pour. Um, yeah, these show beans are pretty hard to deal with. Uh, so, sorry, a technical point, but high and sakazuki. I mean, is there a difference between the two? A high and oh, they're 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 basically interchangeable. Okay. Well, I have a a, a real amateurish question, Robert. I wonder if you can help me because when we are talking. Uh, with an international community about sake, we're of, we're often having a discussion about glassware as the as the medium to enjoy sake's aroma and flavor. And it's really easy to explain to people what kind of shape we suggest or is suggested for a particular sake, um, because there are flutes, there are tulip shaped, there's a you know a Bordeaux bowl there's a riesling shape you know there are all sorts of standardized kind of names for different glassware shapes so it makes it easy to select uh, within the category of sake drinking vessels are there even more um, specific names that relate to shape yes there are and it's funny you mention that because i have one of the most distinctive ones just sitting here coincidentally this is called a bajohai and ba is a horse, and ba uh, jo is like riding a horse. So long ago, if you were a, a nobleman or a samurai and you were thirsty on a horse, you would have this stemmed cup easy to grip and you could gallop along and you know drink and throw it. So this is called the ba jo hai. The one that I just got from Mr. Omori, who's sitting right there, is a tsutsu hai. It's a cylindrical. A thin, taller shape. This one is like a tea bowl, so it's called a wangata. Um, open-faced ones, one like this is called a hirahai, because it's wide and open. But, um, and then there's different shapes, like a rokakuhai. This one is a, is a faceted one. Um, but it's not exactly six sides, but in the Mino area, they used to make ones called the Rokakuhai, six-sided. 
So there are, but it's not like a T-balls, like where there's so many different names, but there, there are different uh, uh, names based on the form. And have you been, sorry, have you been able to draw some, um, I mean, uh, a matrix of what shape goes well with what type of sake or is that? Sure, I mean, you know, something open face like this where heat will dissipate rather quickly, um, I would say is better for a, you know, room temperature or chilled sake. Uh, something that is more rounded and closed for a warmer sake or, you know, con. Uh, where you have a nice thin lip like this, you want the sake to kind of flow to the front where you're gonna taste all the, the, the fruitiness and, and floral uh, aspects of it. Um, you know, something which is a regular jumai, uh, where there's not a whole lot of ar uh, aromas to it, maybe a, a thicker lip where it goes into the back, you get more of a rounded flavor. But again, like John says, you know, there's no rule of thumb it's basically experimenting and finding what you think works best. You know, and this particular artist is a, is a Nombe. They're, they're a well-known Nombe family. So he makes this incredibly beautiful lip that is perfect. It just, it just fits right to the top and the bottom of your mouth. And his father, and John might remember this, his father used to say that the sake, a good sake cup lip should be like your first kiss. And this is the Nakamura family from Bizen. So both the father and son are still throwing. They were still both making, making, making pottery. Correct. And um, were their ages? Just out of curiosity. You yeah. don't hear too much about fathers and sons both doing that. Yeah, uh, the son is around 42 and the father's early 70s. And the grandfather studied with the first living national treasure. So you have three generations of potters in that family. I Correct. Mean, of serious potters in that family. Serious drinking potters in this family. <laughs> Would you say that there are exchanges between the sake and the clay? And, and so do you see, do you have, as, as, a, as, as an expert, see a difference uh, with the same sake between a glazed and an unglazed uh, sake? Yeah, you, you can, particularly if you keep it um, like in a bizen flask like this. So um, the, the, the sake becomes rounder and fuller compared to um, porcelain or glass, in my opinion, because there are minerals in, these, in the clay that interact with the sake. And in the Momoyama period, there was an adage, bizen tokkuri sake ga umai, which meant that if you put just average sake into a bizen flask, it would make the sake better. So bizen tokuri were very popular for that. Bizen tokuri sake ga umai. It's a very age old adage. So yes, the, 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 the glazed work and unglazed work, uh, rough uh, or glass or porcelain, you can sense subtle differences because of the materials used. Not 100% of the time, but a lot of the time. Hey Rob, over the history of Japanese ceramics, were there periods of time where sake vessels drove development and other times when tea vessels drove development? Or was it mostly tea vessels that drove development or the opposite? Yeah, probably it was the tea world because, you know, uh, sake cups, guinomi, um, are very much associated with the kaiseki meal. 
So it was definitely the tea world that um, invigorated, uh, uh, drove potters to make more sake-related vessels. Interesting. But these, as tea drinking is waning and less, fewer people are studying the tea ceremony, more people are drinking sake. Uh, sake vessels are actually more popular and sell better at exhibition. They're usually first things that sell out uh, at, a, at a, a popular artist's exhibition because um, you don't need a lot of space to collect a nice, you could have a, a shelf and collect 30 or 40 different sake cups and it don't, doesn't take up space. Um, and of course, they're a lot less priced than, than uh, chawan or tea bowls, but they're certainly associated with each other. So you're going to edit this later, right, Justin? Yeah. One, yeah, one of the most valuable yeah. things you taught me, Rob, was that if you buy a nice piece, don't throw away the box <laughs> or the value drops. Absolutely. You know, a box is very important because Japanese um, art that is functional art was traditionally uh, changed with the season. So you needed a box to store things in and to protect them. And in the 19th, in the 20th century, artists started to sign the boxes uh, with the usually the style, the form, and their name. And these became an integral part of authentication that the work was made by the artist and uh, gives it more of a monetary value. So when you buy a piece of Japanese ceramic art and you're able to get a box signed by the artist, sometimes they're signed by descendants of the artists, uh, it's always recommended that you do get a signed box and keep the box because uh, not only will it protect it if you're going to store it away for a couple of months and then bring it out and surprise yourself again how beautiful it is, but if uh, your descendants want to put it into auctions or donate it to a museum, the value uh, remains usually consistent with the box. If the box disappears or is lost, uh, the value is reduced, sometimes significantly by half. So, you know, uh, if say this was a tea bowl by the great Arakawa Toyozo and the tea bowl is uh, on the market for a million yen, if there is no box, you could say it's probably going to be about half that. Wild. When we talk about shokunin and the beauty of, you know, kurabito and their craftsmanship and how they go about what they do, these boxes are handmade by uh, craftsmen, uh, you know, making boxes with no nails. Uh, with, with beautiful wood grain. Uh, and another aspect of the box is calligraphy is a time-honored art in Japan. So the artists all have different beautiful calligraphy writing and they'll sign that. So some people just display the box top, which is where the writing is next to the piece. Thanks to you, I've got all my boxes. They're, they're <laughs> taking up space, but I got them. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sometimes the missus gets a little annoyed with that, I know. <laughs> In your, in your gallery, Robert, you are carrying some porcelain as well, just a little bit. Uh, porcelain is a different animal in the world of ceramics. Do you have any particular comments about um, sakeware in porcelain? Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I like porcelain. This is a beautiful, again, a bajohai from the area in Ishikawa called Kutani, mm -hmm. um, which is in Komatsu City. And, you know, it's very technically proficient. Um, uh, thought out carefully about how the person's going to paint it and the glazing scheme. Uh, again, very nice in summer because it's cooler to the touch. Uh, you want to feel coolness in your 
ambiance, your, your, you know, abode in the summertime using less air conditioning as much as possible. So porcelain is nice for that. My own particular aesthetics um, is more of the interaction in a wood-burning kiln and the happenstances that make every piece unique. You could ask this potter to make a set of 10 matching and they would pretty much be able to do that exactly. You, you ask this potter to make a, a matching 10 of this bison, it's impossible. It's like having a child. There's only one in existence. So I love that analogy of one-of-a-kind works and the interaction of not knowing exactly how it's going to come out of the kiln and letting go of control. For, so for me, there's lots of uh, uh, philosophy in these wood-burning works because it's, it's, a, it's almost a metaphor of life. Uh, you create something, but, you know, S-H-I-T happens sometimes, but it can turn out to be a good thing. So my own personal aesthetics, and I guess every gallery in the world uh, is run like that. It's the aesthetics of the person who's selecting the work. Mine is not leaning so much toward porcelain because it's, it's, it's an incredible art form uh, and uh, it appeals to people around the world. Uh, you know, and for Westerners, well, Westerners who don't understand Japanese ceramics, they can look at this and go, oh, wow, that's just beautiful. But for Westerners who are not familiar and go, wow, that's a drippy, ugly looking, snotty piece. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a different aesthetics. But once you get this, I don't think many people are gonna go back to this, except in the season that might bring you the coolness that I mentioned. And perhaps even in the context as well, for example, maybe in, uh, in, in with the, the Hassan course and a kaiseki meal, you're wanting something very, very refined and that, that, that's got, as you say, a cool touch, a very elegant sense to it that might work well with the particular food that you're eating. So maybe the, the, the season, the type of sake, the, the, the context, would that also affect the selection, Robert? Absolutely. And even the city, you know, in Kyoto, you know, with the kaiseki meal uh, and the refinement of that, they're not using a whole lot of bizen stoneware or shigaraki stoneware. It's more oh. lighter types of smaller pieces, um, you know, often like Mishima, uh, these kind of, this is a very small piece. Uh, Mishima is an inlaid Korean style that many potters in Kyoto make. So even the, the, the area where you're going to dine in will affect that. Uh, Actually, it's, it's funny you brought up Mishima because, as you know, I used to live quite near Mishima City. And when I moved to Japan for the first time, I moved from South Korea and I went to a gallery in Mishima and I saw Korean pottery there. And I was like, oh, wow, you've got Korean pottery. And said, no, no, it's Japanese. It's called Mishima. I was like, what? <laughs> Hang on a minute. So I think it's important to remember that a lot of Japanese pottery aesthetics actually came from across the, across the road. It's very true. Um, Celadon from China, Mishima from Korea. There was a great um, scholar potter, uh, in the 20th century named Koyama Fujio. And he's the person who nicknamed the six ancient kilns of Japan. And he said that uh, China is the father and Korea is the mother of Japanese ceramics. So there's a great indebtedness to them. And, you know, talking about porcelain, it was two captured Koreans from Hideyoshi's invasion 
that went down to Arita and found the stones necessary to make porcelain. Robert, would you mind just sort of touching upon sort of the regional relationship between yakimono and things like, and, and different pottery and ceramics? Because I mean, that's such sure. a huge part of it, just sort of letting our listeners know kind of what that relationship is like and kind of touch on kind of the diversity and... Yeah, well, regionality, you know, just like sake uh, is, is very important. Um, you know, I think, you know, John was talking yesterday about like in Nagano, where people are in the mountains, they're having pickled foods, they're having salted foods, you know, so they need a rough sake, you know, not like Kyoto, where it was very, you know, tender of sorts, you know, so a place like Mashko, which is known for its minge style folk craft ware, uh, they would make very hardy, sturdy, durable sake vessels, you know, and, and the first living treasure was Hamada Shoji, he said, you could roll my pot down the road like a bowling ball and it'll still be intact, you know, because it's <laughs> a rustic folk craft town. You know, with pottery, the main character clay. Um, and there, you know, Japan being such a mountainous region, uh, every area that is well known, uh, their defining characteristic is the uniqueness of their clay. So for Bizen, it's a iron rich, uh, it's called Tazuchi, which is a, a tambo, a rice paddy clay. So you dig three meters under the rice paddy and you get this iron rich brown clay. Oh. It's very sh- uh, so that's called Tazuchi. Um, for Shigaraki, it's more of a lighter mountain clay that's embedded with feldspar stones that kind of burst out to the surface. Uh, and it's a very unique clay only found in that area. When you get down to Yamaguchi, uh, it's um, kind of a, a sandier clay. And again, he left this one area unglazed to show you the beauty of that. So Hagi is a very um, coarse, uh, it's known to leak a lot because uh, it's fired at a lower temperature and it's got all this little grit in it, um, uh, similar to karatsu. So Justin, the, the point is that every region uh, has its unique characteristics due to the clay and not every region has good clay. That's why you know you don't find a lot of um, potters uh, in, in, in the historical sense in the Izu Peninsula where Rebecca and I lived. But nowadays, you can pick up your phone and call your clay broker in Shigaraki. <laughs> They'll have you blend the clay, and you can have a ton shipped out to anywhere you want. That's pretty wild. I, I think that's true with rice as well. You know, yeah, you can, I was going to say that. Yeah, it's kind of similar to I guess sake breweries where you got a lot of places. You ask them why, why is the sake brewery here? It's not because there was rice fields there; it was access to water. Whereas with say pottery and things, why are there so many kilns in this area? was probably because of that relationship to the land, to the, to the clay. Exactly. So one of the, the, the most prolific potting areas is in the Gifu region. It's a Toki and Tajimi city. And uh, one of the, the great clay styles there is called Mogusa clay. And, you know, it's this white, creamy, almost like vanilla ice cream. Uh, so, yeah, they moved that out there because of the quality of the clay. So tonight, I'm going to break in. Well, actually, it's quality control. I have to make sure vessels work properly before. <laughs> just you can never confirm too many times, can you? That <laughs> I interrupted you. What is it? Talk to me about the piece you're just going to break in there, Rob. Um, well, I love it because it looks like it grew right out of the forest floor. There's such a a, a naturalness to 
his throwing. Uh, of course, he held it uh, before he dipped it into this feldspar glaze. He had an, a brush and he whipped on this iron underglaze. Uh, you tell that and, by looking at it, or he told you that? Yeah. Well, you can see here this this brownish streak right here, and right around the lip too. Mm. So uh, his finger, there's a little finger aftermark here. So he held it, and he dipped it. Uh, he dipped the brush, and then just whipped it on here, and then around the lip as well. Then he dipped it into this vat of feldspar liquid, and made this kind of creamy. Uh, glaze to it and it just feels so good you know i mean part of the aspect of a good sake vessel is the balance to it uh you don't want it to, you know and that's again a personal preference i like it to have a little weight in the base you know where you kind of go uh, give it a little swirl in your hand and you can feel the little heft to it um and particularly the lip and it's pretty hard to discern but it's 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 just the perfect you know, it's like he whipped his hands together and it just appeared. Wild. And, and it's also going beyond technique. You know, anybody can learn to throw a perfectly balanced uh, tea bowl or rice bowl. But how do you give it this, this jazzy verve to it? That comes out of his spirit. Hmm. You know, it's like a musical note that's, that's frozen. Robert, I have two questions, and I'm speaking on Justin's control because he's, he's the one who's going to have to edit it. The two things I would like to, to cover is, one is shochu. I mean, talk about, um, about ceramics and shochu in your, in your experience. And the second one is going back to uh, Rebecca's um, well, question or earlier remark about the role that, uh, I mean, Rebecca commented about how we... Um, Easy, I mean, we talked about glassware to uh, sake fans or, or people who start to, to venture into the world of sake overseas using glassware. And so my question is about the role that ceramics, Japanese ceramics can play in the promotion of uh, sake overseas. Yeah. Um, well, first off, I, I, I think the glassware introduction is a great entrance for people to appreciate sake overseas because they can associate it with things they're familiar with, like drinking wine. So you give um, you know, sake to somebody who's not familiar with it in a cup like this, they can't see the color. They're not sure, like, why is it this funky form? Uh, it's not, I think, the best particular entrance vessel for people who want to drink sake overseas. But once you get somebody aware of the incredible flavor profiles of sake and get them hooked on trying more, uh, you know, they can stick with their stemmed wine glass or, or rounded wine glass, but they'll also realize that there are cultural aspects only associated with ceramics uh, around sake. So um, I think that's the proper entry level. About shochu, uh, unfortunately, I don't drink a lot of shochu, but, you know, they're usually larger cups like this for a big chunk of ice more rounded. I have some shochu cups in the other, in my kitchen, because occasionally I do. Um, sometimes they're like a teacup form, um, a little rounder, fatter, wider open, so you can oh. get a chunk of ice in there. Um, and there are, you know, ceramic artists who make, you know, shochu cups. 
particularly there's a guy in Shigaraki I'm very fond of. His name is Furutani Kazuya. He's got these nice, big, bold shochu cups. Um, I run to the kitchen to grab one, but uh, I don't want to leave you hanging. Basically, introducing ceramics uh, with sake at a slightly later stage kind of enriches the experience, not only the tasting experience, but just brings additional cultural uh, elements to the experience of uh, enjoying sake. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, a glass is made by machine, by a machine. Uh, I mean, of course, there's hand-blown glass, and, and you could sense the, 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 the soul of the, the, the maker. But with something that's thrown on a wheel or pinched or coil-built, there's an essence to it. There's a, 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 an earthiness to it. There's a rhythm to it that can only come from the human touch. And that's part of, of course, the philosophy of the Minge folk craft movement. Um, and of course, as Yanagi said, industrialism has been of some service to mankind, but it's taken away the warmth and spirit of a lot of the things we use, which bring us great joy on a daily level, which is eating and drinking. And you know, to hold something that, in particular, when you find out the history of the style, the history of the family, the history of the, the person who made it, it just brings it closer to um, a deeper, richer enjoyment of what you're imbibing from. Uh, and uh, there, it's something you almost can't even put into words. It's just like, uh, you know, it's like that wow moment. Um, and, you know, like with sake and regionality and different grades of sake, uh, there are different grades and, and levels of sake cups. They can range, you know, from a couple of hundred yen to a couple of million yen. Um, uh, and, you know, you got to find something which speaks to you and, and a personal aesthetic. Uh, Robert, I do want to ask you a little bit about just sort of the nature of your work and your relationship sort of working with all of these artisans. Uh, I mean, you have a gallery and you, I imagine you probably have relationships with dozens and dozens of artists and artisans. Um, would you mind just sort of telling our listeners a little bit about what the process of your work is like or what is it like to build relationships with um, these artisans who's on, honestly they're I mean the nature of their work and what they do is sadly it's hidden from uh, probably 98 percent of the population here in Japan it's not something that a lot of people here are necessarily familiar with is close to to the people um, right what is it like having a gallery what is it like um, working with these people and then sort of how how do these people get their creations um, into the hands of people and sort of what that's like behind the scenes yeah, well, you know, I, I know all these people and I visited them um, and they're just amazing individuals, you know, with a deep knowledge of history and, you know, to be a potter, you have to be a chemist, you have to be an architect, you have to be a carpenter, you know, in, in, in the West, uh, they're finally getting to appreciate that, but there's, it's a deep, deep skill that these artists have. And again, um, I want to support living artists. So, you know, this is Mr. Kimura, that's Miss Watanabe, uh, Yamamoto, I'm sorry, that's uh, Mr. Tanaue, this is Mr. Koide. Um, I want to support artists who are working in these traditions to keep these traditions alive, just like you all are doing with sake. And the more people can drink sake, the more these kuras can um, flourish. So um, in the early days, uh, like in the late 80s, 
well, starting in, you know, mid late eighties, I would just go to exhibitions all the time. You know, there's a couple of um, uh, boutique galleries in Tokyo. One of them is called Shibuya Kuroda Toen. And I learned a lot there. Uh, uh, now the, uh, the owners are the sons, but you know, I would, cause I was living in Mishima. So you could hop on a Shinkansen and be in Tokyo in you know, an hour or less. So I was going up there to these exhibitions every opportunity I, I got. Uh, and um, Shibuya Kuroda Toen was a big um, mentor and uh, place that I could handle these works. Uh, I've got some photos, I'll send one to you and uh, in the early days when I was, and, and th these potters were like baffled, like who's this scruffy kid, <laughs> you know, wondering about this Shibui factor. And um, so it was a lot of field work, a lot of leg work. And then I would meet the artists at an exhibition and then they would invite me to go visit them out in the countryside and I would do that. Um, and um, writing, then I, when I started writing these columns, you know, for 10 years, it, 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 there, nobody was introducing what was going on today. A lot of people knew about the exports of porcelain of Arita and Imari because they were doing that in the 17, 1800s. They were, it was a boom in Europe. So people knew about porcelain, uh, but they didn't know what to look for in like bison. How do you, how do you, how do you discern a good piece of bison from a, a souvenir piece of bison? And so I started writing about that. And uh, over, you know, uh, a long time, uh, it gave me a lot of street cred. And then, um, you know, I, I said to myself, probably people overseas would want to get a nice sake cup uh, or a, a flask. Um, and uh, so my father suggested I get a website. And in the Your late- dad suggested you get a website? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, I know. <laughs> you're older than me and your dad's got to be older than you by, by a good dollop. And that's funny. Yeah, sorry. You can edit that out later, Justin. I'm just, yeah. that's brilliant. <laughs> well, you know, the irony is John and my dad's in heaven now, but um, he, the first time my dad saw Japan was from the cockpit of a P-51 Mustang fighter pilot, you know, from a Mustang. So he flew 19 missions over Japan from Iwo Jima. And here he is, you know, decades later, suggesting to his son, and I go, Dad, I got a fax machine. I'm, I'm approachable. He goes, no, you need a website because that's the future. So he registered JapanesePottery.com for me. Oh, that's too cool. Dude, <laughs> <laughs> John, because you had, you know, uh, your site and Mark, of course, Schumacher. Uh, and so Mark made my first website. And mine. No, not, yeah. that's not true. He, he made one eventually, but anyway, yeah, yeah, he's been, yeah. He's been instrumental. Yeah, Is Isake is, has a very similar look to uh, Robert's uh, original website. Yeah, original. So, um, and then when I got that website, Justin, people from around the world, they're like, oh, you've come down from the mountain. We love Japan. We love ceramics. You know, tell us more. Not only tell us more, send me something. So in the early days, you know, um, I had some very... Uh, trusting clients, you know, how are you going to uh, tell your spouse, I'm going to order a piece of ceramic from Japan and think it's going to come to your front door in one piece, but it's, it worked, you know, so I have clients that I've, I've never met. They've never been to Japan. If they walked in front of me, I wouldn't know who they are, but uh, they've created uh, some wonderful collections via the internet. 
And in the early days, I could live in a small town like Mishima and be successful because nobody else was doing it. But now everybody's on the net. All galleries have a website and not many people would go to Mishima, you know, for a schlep of a day on their travels throughout Japan. So I said, I have to move where people go. And um, Kyoto was a logical choice because all of the great kilns are down in Western Japan. So that's one of the reasons I moved to Kyoto. Uh, and before Corona, I mean, during the spring and the autumn, we had people from all over the world coming into the gallery. Um, and I don't care if people buy a piece or not. It's all dei. I just want them to learn about Japanese culture and the significance of pottery and the enjoyment it brings to the daily things that give us great pleasure, eating and drinking. And if they walk away with that knowledge and insightfulness, then that makes the visit all to me worthwhile. This is, you know, it's not about money at all. I never got into that. You know, that's a secondary thing. You know, it's, it's more than a mere transaction. Um, it, it's a sharing of what we, what we love about Japan. And, you know, I, I think that comes across with my clients. Um, so now, you know, we have clients all over the world. I put a piece on Instagram a day just to show some people something beautiful, in my opinion. Um, and if somebody wants it, that's great. If they go, wow, that was a really nice thing, that's great too. So that's how I connect with people. I imagine a lot of people who haven't necessarily had the opportunity to come to Japan and go and visit galleries or see these, you know, this is a world that, on the internet is very enticing, but they don't have necessarily a lot of opportunity to really come in contact with in a real, in a real way. But are a lot of people interested in sake, you know, they hear about the different types of um, pottery and ceramics and they, they get that that's part of the appeal, but it's not something they're able to really engage with. For people who are interested in kind of dipping their toe into this world, um, do you have any recommendations? I mean, even for example, even if people do come to Japan, you know, you can walk around, you know, uh, Asakusa and, you know, you can go through an omiyage, uh, you know, a souvenir shop and there's all kinds of stuff just, you know, lying around for five bucks or eight bucks or 10 bucks. And it looks nice. It's fun. It's pretty. It's like a candy store or something, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I started out, um, going to my supermarket and I bought like a 600 yen sake cup you know, and, and started to learn about it from there. The, 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 the main thing is to find something you like at first by, you know, um, trusting your intuition and living with it because these things are yo no be. This is beauty through using something. And uh, to find something that you want to use, and it could be a, an eight-buck piece. Why not? You know, there are lots of great $8 pieces out there, and there are a lot of really crappy $10,000 pieces out there, too. So, and I think John and I used to talk about this. John would say, you know, basically with, with premium, with sake, you know, you go up to about five, six, seven thousand yen. And, you know, if you're going to spend 1,500 yen for a bottle or 3,000 yen for a bottle, usually the 3,000 yen bottle is going to be better for certain reasons. That's not the case with ceramics or art in general. Find something that suits your budget. Find something that appeals to you visually first uh, and tactily, again, second, that you want to just use and learn with it. You might outgrow it. You might change your style or, or, or preference over time. A lot of people do. You know, what attracted me 30 years ago doesn't attract me now. You know, we grow, we change. And go to these, if you have the opportunity to come to Japan, go to the flea markets, go to, you know, the, uh, the uh, art fairs. 
there, there's lots of things that are good to be found there. Um, online now, there's dozens of, of dozens and dozens of, of people selling Japanese ceramics. You know, of course, the auction sites have them too. You know, don't trust everything you read. There's, there's lots of things which are, you know, being sold, uh, which are not as they are particularly um, made out to be. So find a reliable dealer or a reliable uh, shop that you can work with, uh, either by word of mouth or reputation. You know, send them your budget. And uh, like I ask people to do for me, if they're interested, and I'm happy to send photos, you know. Um, learn about styles by just going online. And, you know, it's so easy these days. Just go to Google and type in Bizen or, or Hagi or Mashiko or Tamba or Shigaraki or Eichizen, you know, or Seto, you know, and you'll find visual examples. So attune your eye to how to differentiate between different styles. You know, at first it's a whole mishmash, you know, but after looking over, you know, months or so, you'll finally get to, to, to make a, a semblance of order. Oh, that's a Shigaraki style. Okay, I get that now. Oh, that's a Bizen style. I get that now. So the more you can visually look at things, and it's so easy now again because of the net, the more you'll be able to find out what you like in st stylistically wise, uh, form wise, and price wise. That's excellent. Oh, that's great advice. See, so I've been just living like up to my eyeballs in sake and sake related things for the last few weeks. I was really excited to crack a bottle of wine this evening, actually. But now after looking at this, the idea of just using a just a regular wine glass just doesn't even sound appealing to me. I think I'm switching to sake just so I can. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, glass is fine, but and it's it's an amazing vessel. But to me, I like to feel the spirit of the maker, just like you like to taste the spirit of the toji. And you can only do that with handmade things. And I remember my mother, you know, she used to drink coffee from like a Snoopy coffee mug. And there's nothing wrong with Snoopy. I play tennis with Charles Schultz. I love the guy. But, you know, it's, it's a machine-made thing. And once I, I gave her a Bizen coffee mug, she could never drink even water from anything else ever. <laughs> One of the best things you can buy when you come to, um, to, to Japan is your own guenomi, like my guenomi, the, the thing that you will bring back and use um, for the rest of your, of, of your life. I mean, you, you might have, you actually might buy a few uh, during your life, but just that very unique thing uh, is, is a great memory to bring back. Absolutely. And they're small enough, you know, you can wrap them in your socks and throw them in your suitcase. <laughs> and it's probably worth pointing out that this podcast will go up hopefully in time for the, the holiday season. So, you know, what better stocking stuffer than uh, Guinomi for one of your favorites? Guinomi are, are wonderful gifts. Uh, I, I biasly say so. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> That's great. No, I, yeah, I love, I love how you touched on the idea of, you know, living with it, you know, and letting the idea of, you know, evolving, you know, over time, your relationship with that. It's, I think it's very true for sake as well. You know, you find something you like, you find your endpoint, and over time you, you live with it, you, you enjoy it. But as you change and as time changes, 
it leads you to other things that you like and you start exploring and then you go back and revisit it and you kind of brings you back to different times. And just the idea of really being able to live with, like you said, those handmade things. Um, and they become teachers, you know, you'll find out more about the history of the Mino region, you know, the, the Sekigahara war, uh, you know, um, and over time, the piece will change too. The patina will grow, it'll deepen. Um, and I had a client who looked forward to waking up and seeing his Iga Yunomi uh, on the windowsill in the kitchen, bringing in light and creating shadows. And one day um, he, he, he dropped it and it broke and he was in tears. And I said, send it back to me. And he did. And I had my mender do the gold thread Kintsugi. I sent it back to him uh, and he was so thrilled. He said he was gonna break all his pieces, but I advised him against that. And, and there's a metaphor here too. Um, they're not as fragile as you think they are, like our, our bodies, but there's a, a beauty there that is fragile, just like us as humans. And it's a vessel, just like our mind is a vessel. So there's lots of metaphors for me in these works. I think I'm being called to dinner. How much longer? That's all right. No, you know what, Robert, that was the best way you you could have uh, wrapped it up for us, I think. Yes. I think we're I think we're all being called to dinner at right about this time. Um, you wrapped that up beautifully. I've I've, okay. I've got nothing. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, Thank you very much. After that. Something I should mention to uh, <laughs> our, our listeners. I don't know if uh, you can get it in the editing, uh, Justin, but Robert wrote a book. I mean, different books, different articles, but he wrote a book about uh, Japanese pottery. And it's mostly about sake cups and flasks, Totokuri and Guenomi. It's called Ode to Japanese Pottery. And so that's available. You can buy it from Amazon or you can buy it from the gallery, which is even better. So yeah, uh, then you can start your, uh, your, your quest there. Thank you. Better, better to contact me directly because I've seen some outrageous prices on Amazon. Thank you, Sebastian. John, it's so good to see you, man. I'm just, <laughs> man, I'm feeling like I'm feeling like a like a, a bro bro. What do they call us? A bromance here? <laughs> <laughs> that might be what they call it, but yeah. Anyway, I'm happy to see you too. <laughs> I'll get down to Kyoto sometime soon. I'll yeah. make sure that happens. All the listeners, um, uh, when you're ever in Kyoto, um, we're right on the philosopher's path, very near Gikakuji. Um, not too far from Matsui Shuzo. There's a, a great uh, sake shop around the corner. I'm welcome, happy to take people to. It's called Nishimura, incredible shop. Okay. And uh, just to um, share uh, and show people various styles uh, which are in the gallery and talk about them. So uh, anybody who visits Kyoto, please feel free to contact me and, and come for a visit. And make sure you contact him first, so it's not a make sure he's not at tennis. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Come on back. Come on back. <laughs> we'll make a trip. We'll have to. We'll have to. We'll have to do once once we're we're free to move around a little bit more. We'll have to. We'll have to do like a team visit or something like that. that yeah, we should, we, we, we should. We should do a Kyoto edition of live from yeah. yeah we should right? do like eight kyoto editions done done <laughs> done what have met rob's place for sure perfect thank perfect. you so much uh robert right, thanks, for your rob. time. thanks everybody else too thank you thank right, you everyone cool. for uh, being part of this sebastian thank you for inviting me i really appreciate it and thanks to all 
John, Rebecca, Justin, that you do in bringing the world of sake and other wonderful beverages to the world. I really appreciate it. As okay. oh, thank you, I think we're glad to have you on. Pottery to the world, dude. It's just yeah. like let's blend them and 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 move forward in that direction. Yeah, and I'll tell you, Robert, one of the, one of the most requested episodes we've gotten ever since we started is do something on you know, glassware, serviceware, pottery, service, everything. When you, when are you going to do that? When are you going to do that? And since and we were always from the beginning, we said, well, we should probably just get Robert on. We should probably just get Robert on. And so it's been about two years. So it's been a long time coming. So I'm very glad we're finally able to do this. And we'll have to, we'll have to continue this um, and uh, see, we'll have to live with this and let, let this evolve. And we'll keep, keep this, uh, um, keep this uh, theme going in some, some future episodes or programs of some sort here. We'll keep this conversation going. Much Excellent. Robert, thank you so much. Uh, to the rest okay. of the team, Sebastian, John, thank Rebecca, you. thank you. Otsukare. Thank you very much. Pleasure to you guys. All right. Great to see you all. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you here very soon. Yeah. All right. Take care, everybody. Take care. Bye. 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 Take care. Bye. Bye. And that will wrap it up for this week's episode of Sake on Air. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. And if you happen to have any questions, you can get in touch with us at questions at sakeonair.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter uh, by searching at sakeonair. And actually, for those of you that missed out on the Sake Futures Summit 2020, we've got pretty much all of those episodes now archived on our YouTube channel. So if you want to go ahead and check that out, you've got your holiday viewing covered. Sake on Air is brought to you with the amazing support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and broadcasts under normal circumstances from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo. The show is a co-production between Export Japan and Potsuke Productions. Have a great week, a fantastic holiday season, and kanpai!